Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hi, friends. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us this week. We are glad you're here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Changed it up a little bit. Did change it up a little bit. This is what a uh, red hot housing market will get you. Yes. It is unlikely that we're going to have a clean recording today. I'm from... hoping this works out cleanly because- yeah, From we... TDHQ. Yeah, we've had bobcats and there are two houses across the street and next door that are currently being loudly renovated. So it is to the Patreon vault we go Huzzah. with the 1972 Steelers wheel hit stuck in the middle with mm-hmm. you. Seems kind of like us this weekend. It does. We have- Chainsaws to the left of us, nail guns to the right, and here I am stuck in the middle with you. Bobcat. Good Lord. Anyway, we do have some fun on Patreon. It was a great week to pull some stuff out of the vault. As promised, I have the follow-up from last week's two-parter double bonus episode about Olivia de Havilland. It is her baby sister's time to shine. In the Trashy Divorces Spotlight this week, I'm covering Joan Fontaine. Stacy, this week. So on Patreon, we are... <laughs> have had a lot of fun this month. We are covering the Trashy Bonaparte family of France. You may have heard of Nappy Bones, Napoleon Bonaparte. It turns out that, wow, just... Anyway, this is his second marriage to Marie-Louise of Austria... We did Josephine before. Anyway, it's... It's a funny episode. It is a wild romp through (laughs) a wacky family of social climbers. We thought you might enjoy that uh, comedic relief from Trashy Divorces, that uh, Trashy Divorces redneck thunder, and it is kind of amazing. Before we get started with our episode this week, if we have another few seconds to pull out the magic mirror before all the other sounds start... I want to give a big shout out in our magic mirror to our new Patreon people who joined us this week at patreon.com slash trashy divorces for dumpster dives, trashy Bonapartes, what's between Alicia's ears, nightcap chats, all the great stuff over there. Who's in our mirror this week, Stacey? Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie S, Sherry M, and Patty F. Holy cats, two new super supporters as well, Stephanie R and Kate S. We see you in the magic mirror have a few shout outs before we start because we have baby news mm-hmm. in the world. Not ours. No, we have no baby news. But I would like to give a big shout out to Becca, who sent me a picture of her trash panda baby, Evelyn, who is adorable. And I just want to eat Evelyn up. We have some personal baby news this week within mm-hmm. our friend circle. Welcome to the world, Nora. We're so excited. You're beautiful. Congrats to the gang. All the gang. We're all the moms. Mm-hmm. We're all the grandmoms at this I guess. point. I, yeah. I guess. Weird. Okay. Babies, we love them. Send us pictures of your trashy babies. Send us pictures of your trashy selves. We adore you. Also, cats and dogs. We're into it. Oh, my God. We're into all of it. I do have one other shout out for a trio of Australian listeners who gave us the nicest shout out on Chat 10 Looks 3. 
I want to thank Meredith and Alex and Georgie. Thanks for tuning in from Down Under. Should we take a cue from... Gestures wildly at the outside? Yes. I think it's time that we need to go, go, go. Alicia, I have just injured myself on our treadmill, and so I understand you're going to tell me a story that will allow the ibuprofen to kick in and my knees to stop hurting. That is entirely correct. (laughs) Cool. I was not going to leave the youngest sibling out. So we did a two-parter last week on Olivia de Havilland. This week, we're going to focus in on Joan de Beauvoir de Havilland, her baby sister. Joan Fontaine. Okay. I, I guess I thought de Havilland was a bit of a made-up name. Is that not? No, de Havilland is their really real name. Okay. And remember Olivia, because we covered all the family drama last week. Olivia takes de Havilland, and then Joan goes to the fortune teller mm-hmm. and steals Olivia's boyfriend. And the fortune teller is like, you need an eight-letter name that starts with F. Right. And it's the stepdad's name, and fu- Iron And fuckity Duke. fuck didn't fit. Yeah, fuckity fuck didn't fit. And remember, they hate the stepdad. The stepdad is the one who beats them with the 22 lashes and the intervention from school. Like, we covered all that. Right. So I wanted today to talk about the parts we didn't talk about last week with Joan. Because I would be a terrible eldest sibling if I did not shine some light on the baby in the family. Okay. So I guess this is part three. Oh, Joan. Scorpio girl. October 22nd, remember, never just an ordinary girl. She's born 15 months after Olivia. And for real, Joan Fontaine is a very good actress. She is lovely. She is passionate. She is everything that you would expect out of someone born within the cusp of drama. It sounds like that's true in all parts of her life. She's dramatic for sure. Maybe Joan is walking around her entire life with some pretty big chips on her shoulders. But I'm glad shoulder pads were a thing in this time and all the dresses because it actually gives them a little bit of a foundation to carry around the chips on her shoulders. Okay, so remember mom is living through Olivia and Joan. Mom has a rotten first marriage. And not only does the dad drop them off in California, return to Tokyo to marry the housekeeper... At the time of the marriage in Tokyo, he's going around with a lot of geisha girls. Like, it's not good. Mm -hmm. And mom, retired actress, having given up her dreams of stardom, is going to live her dream through her children. So remember, as a teenager, mom's hospitalized. And when Olivia is like, I'm out of here, stepdad kicks her out because she's joined the drama club. And she, like, leaves at 16. And Jonah's like... I was not aware that was something a person could do. Mm -hmm. Joan takes off to Tokyo to be with dad and stepmom. This is where we're going to pick up Joan's story. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back and listen to last week, part one and two. I'm not going to cover the same ground twice. Certainly part one um, has, you know, I think you've caught us up, but there's some, there's some flavor. Uh, There was, there were fantasies of homicide. Oh yeah. There were... (laughs) As as children, these two beat the hell out of each other. They're very close in age, but miles apart. Um, okay, so this was this is going to be fun. Okay. Okay. Whew. Joan gets to Tokyo. She's enrolled in school and in school. She's like 14, right? Because Livy's 16. So like Joan's 14, about to be 15. She will enroll in the drama club as well. But she hates Tokyo. 
and she'll head on back to California. And this is when she moves in with mom and Olivia and becomes Olivia's seamstress, chauffeur, uh, errand girl. When Olivia's like, please let me send you to finishing school so you can be a society lady. And Joan's like, nah. Joan will instead run right down to that Saratoga theater and much like Olivia will star in a local production, just like Olivia, have a promote her, spot her, right? Immediately sign her to a contract, which this guy's going to turn around and sell to RKO. Again, not Olivia's studio. Olivia's like, you cannot work for Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Joan Fontaine is going to have her first small part in a 1935 film called No More Ladies, starring opposite Betty Davis. More minor roles come. She's starring opposite Katherine Hepburn in the next one. The next film is a little film called A Damsel in Distress that she makes with Fred Astaire. Joan Fontaine works with everyone in Hollywood. It's the most amazing thing. But the shitty thing about this film, A Damsel in Distress, I think this is 1937. Joan has been doing all of these minor roles, supporting parts. And this is a better part for Joan But unfortunately for Joan, as lovely as she is in 1937, being a graceful, feminine, lovely dancer, Fred Astaire co-starring. This is the first picture that Fred Astaire makes without his infamous and lovely and graceful and everyone loves her dancing partner, Ginger Rogers. So everybody's like, oh, Mm -hmm. the public is not down. Like, regardless of how good Joan is, I'm sorry, she's 19, but like, regardless of how good she is, she is not Ginger Rogers and the public is mad and she's kind of heartbroken. Oh, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. she was like a pretender uh, to... But she wasn't. She, it was lovely. It was a good film. She yeah. was fine. She It was great. Yeah, it just but didn't she's work not as, a, as a PR thing. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work. That's too bad. Joan's going to roll back over to more supporting roles, more minor roles, and then 1939 happens. Now, 1939, or 1938 to 39, right, because it's in production for a while, is when Olivia, her sister, is doing Gone with the Wind. Joan is going to get a part in a film called Gunja Din, which is super successful. But Joan is just getting miscast. Like, they haven't found her type yet her niche yet like nobody knows quite what to do with her but Cary Grant is in this film Gunja Den and he hates Joan Fontaine okay he calls Cary Grant calls her too ambitious which sorry Cary Grant that's a bunch of bullshit phrase of the week find any other term but she's too ambitious which she could be ambitious right there's no too ambitious for a woman fuck off Cary Grant as much as I love you seriously for real Okay, but he, Cary Grant never wants to act with her again. So Joan, who has kind of had a successful-ish run of films, getting noticed and gunged in. But Olivia, right, <sighs> doing Gone with the Wind. Olivia's nominated for, well, okay, shit. I'm going to tell it like it's written, but I see where I should have reversed this a little, but it'll make sense in a second. So Olivia nominated for... Best Supporting Actress in 1939 with Gone with the Wind. Then the same year, it's a big year, RKO will pass on the renewal for Joan Fontaine's contract. This is when George Cukor 
snaps Joan Fontaine up for a film called The Women, also released in 1939. Like, 1939 may be the best year of Hollywood movies ever. I don't know if it's The Hill I'm Gonna Die On, because 1940 is pretty spectacular, too. But those two years are just bonzo in the films that were made. So back in the day where George Cooker is the actual assigned director for Gone with the Wind, Joan Fontaine will read for Scarlet. George was directing. And the thing that you need to know about George Cooker, LLGC. Ladies love George Cooker. Okay. He is a he is known in Hollywood as a woman's director. Okay. Every other director out there is a fucking prick, according to the leading women of Hollywood. The leading women of Hollywood want to work with George Cooker because he's just, he's a woman's director. He gets them. He gets the best performances. George Cooker, big deal with the gals. <sighs> All right. The Gone with the Wind thing is coming, but like I got, this it's very spider webby. Do you think spiders scream when they see us like we scream when we see them? Okay. George Cooker is unceremoniously booted out of Selznick's Gone with the Wind. Another story, another day. But George Cooker's like, fuck that, I'll show you. I'm going to go ahead and go direct the women. Y'all, Norma Shearer, Paulette Goddard, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Joan Fontaine. Like, every other actress who has read for a part in Gone with the Wind and not been cast is in The Women in 1939. It is a phenomenal film. Okay, so now Joan is on the move. And she's getting noticed. It's a good performance. And Joan, even if she's miscast, much like her sister, Joan doesn't really have a bad performance. She can be totally in the wrong roles, but she's going to give it the 100% like campfire girl try. I don't know what her campfire girl name was. I have to find that out. Before we step off the train to get to the stellar performances of Joan Fontaine, let's go ahead and step off the train. Hang out at the Trashy Divorces Depot for a second and pick up English actor Brian Ahern, Olivia's old boyfriend, because, you know, Joan's going to have to get married first. And here's the thing. Brian Ahern, the night before the wedding, is like, I cannot do this. I do not want to do this. I do not want to marry you. We need to call the whole damn thing off. And Joan is like, we have to do this, but I will make a deal with you. You can divorce me whenever you want. We have to get married. But you can divorce, like, it's weird. Yeah. They're going to be done essentially by 1943, but will divorce in 1945. So this one, you know, unhappy going in, unhappy going out. Back to Joan Fontaine's movies. <laughs> so lucky. Joan Fontaine <laughs> in 1940, primarily on the success of the women, because she's very good, gets her breakout role. She's huge. She is starring in Rebecca. Which, his movies go wowza. So 1938, Daphne de Maurier comes out with her groundbreaking Rebecca novel. And it's, of course, turned into a film. Oh, and it's so good. And it's delicious. And it's the first Hollywood film Hitchcock directs. Do you know Hitchcock has never won an award for his directing? No, I didn't. Yeah, never. Not for like... Like an Academy Award. Like an Academy Award. He's won plenty of awards, right. but he's been nominated five times as sole director. Wow. And never picked up an Oscar. Did not realize. Here's what's more insulting about Hitchcock and Rebecca is that both Joan Fontaine and her co-star Laurence Olivier will be nominated for this movie. Okay. Holy crap. 
Hitchcock is directing, but this is also just like Gone with the Wind, a David O. Selznick production. So he, David O. Selznick, is playing the same game like he did with the nationwide casting for Scarlet. Okay, like, who will be the next Scarlet? Every actress in Hollywood. Like, it is right. legend. And it's the press, and it's the guessing games. And apparently, like, it takes six months to decide on actually casting Joan, which to me is six months of wasted time because, god damn, she's perfect. Like, it, she is amazing in Rebecca. What's happening behind the scenes? Laurence Olivier is co-starring with Joan Fontaine in that movie. And he has spent the last six months determined not to let Joan Fontaine get that part. Why? Because Laurence Olivier, this is 1940, and shit's going down on his own love life. He is married to this lovely English actress. They've been married 10 years. Her name is Jill Esmond. Laurence Olivier, Larry, Larry and Jill meet in 1928 in this production of a play called Bird in the Hand. This is in the UK. Larry's smitten. He proposes to Jill inside of three weeks. Wow. Larry's done. And this is all happening in England. And Jill is like, not Ice Princess. Dude, I'm good. You're not the one that I want. Like, she just keeps pushing him off. Which makes, of course, Laurence Olivier and his ardor much more passionate. Because the more she tells me no, the more excited I get. Great. This production of Bird in the Hand, being staged in London is now being called over to Broadway in New York City. And Jill is chosen for the cast, but Larry is not. But no matter, Lawrence Olivier is going to go ahead and leave anyway and go to New York City to chase the girl, Jill. So much chasing. Finally, he breaks her down. They get married in 1930. A few weeks after the wedding is done, like the magic is over. They both realize that they have made... A A huge mistake. Terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. But her star is on the rise. His is not. And we will talk about the trashy divorces of Laurence Olivier in the future. I kind of spiraled off there. But let's get back to Rebecca. So like 1940. Actually, no. 1937. Because Jill won't divorce Larry. Jill is like, hell no, I'm not giving you a divorce. They have a kid in 1936. But in 1937, Laurence Olivier meets Vivian Lee. And if... Lawrence Olivier was smitten with Jill Esmond. He is gaga over Vivian Lee. Problematic because Vivian Lee is also married and she's in love with Lawrence Olivier. So it all shakes down in like 19, end of 1939, beginning of 1940, where Jill finally will agree to divorce Lawrence Olivier. Vivian Lee's husband will agree to divorce her, leaving Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee to get married in 1940. So all of that nonsense is happening as they're casting for Rebecca. Because Lawrence Olivier is like, hell no, that part needs to go to my girlfriend, my future wife, Vivian Lee. I don't want Joan Fontaine to co-star with me. Okay, is Vivian Lee in the movie? No. Okay. Vivian Lee has just come off of Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, right? No. So this is all just to get uh, Joan Fontaine into a movie with uh, Laurence Olivier. This is to keep Joan Fontaine out of the movie with Laurence Olivier because he hates her. Laurence Olivier wants his girlfriend, Vivian Lee, cast mm-hmm. in Rebecca. Vivian Lee is not cast in Rebecca. So Laurence Olivier is going to spend the entire production of Rebecca 
on an artillery hate you campaign against Joan Fontaine. Joan will be treated badly by him as well as the rest of the cast. They do her dirty the whole time. Everybody will just come up and tell her how much they hate her all the time. We hate you. Like, they intentionally torture her yeah. on the set. That's how much clout, like, Laurence Olivier has and how much he is mad Joan Fontaine got this part. Yeah, well, let's also recall Cary Grant hated her, so I, I don't know. Maybe she's just genuinely awful. Although it sounds like Laurence Olivier is also genuinely awful. Perhaps both can be true. So the whole filming set of Rebecca is torture for Joan Fontaine, but what it does for her performance within her character is makes her even more fragile and vulnerable. And essentially, Laurence Olivier is being a dick to her all through filming, but because of this, it brings forth this, like, Oscar-nominated performance. She's mesmerizing in this movie. Rebecca will win for Best Picture, which means that David O. Selznick gets that Oscar for Best Picture, but David O. Selznick did Gone with the Wind, too, Correct. right? He won back-to-back two Best okay, Pictures. Okay, that's why I'm confused. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier, even though they're both nominated for Best Actor or Best Actress, neither will win. The 1940 Academy Awards, the Best Actor Award goes to Jimmy Stewart for Philadelphia Story. And Ginger Rogers is Best Actress in Kitty Foyle, which, seriously, a few things here. Ginger Rogers is amazing. But if I am stacking movies of importance here, Kitty Foyle is not ranking higher in my imagination than Rebecca. Who else was in the running that year? Who's everybody going against? Betty Davis, Katherine Hepburn, and Martha Scott. Dude's huge. Okay. So this is the year after Joan Fontaine's sister, Olivia de Havilland, does not win for Best Supporting Actress, right? And now she's... Done with Best Supporting, she wants to be Best Actress. And so then the next year, now her baby sister is getting nominated for Best Actress in in Rebecca, but, like, Joan loses. So both Olivia and Joan working for their dreams. I cannot stress enough. I think this might be where it starts. Joan Fontaine deserved that Oscar for Rebecca more, which makes the next year even more exciting. This is the 1941 Academy Awards, which has... Betty Davis up again, Greer Garson, Barbara Stanwyck, Olivia de Havilland for Hold Back the Dawn, and Joan Fontaine for Suspicion, right? This is the Oscar ceremony where it all goes down. So Joan will win for Suspicion, which for real, good film, but I think it was a crap. We overlooked you because Rebecca really was good, but it'll also begin the feuding of Olivia and Joan. Right. Okay. Joan Fontaine will receive her third and final Oscar nomination for a little film called The Constant Nymph in 1943. And this one's super weird because Joan is, I don't know, 1943, in her mid-20s, like 25, 26. And she's playing this 14-year-old girl in pigtails opposite Orson Welles. It's a whole rabbit hole for another day. She won't win that year. She'll be nominated with Gene Arthur, Greer Garson, Ingrid Bergman, and Jennifer Jones that year, and Jennifer Jones will take it home. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. About this time, 1944, Joan, again, is not going to be well cast in this other Daphne Daphne Demure work called Frenchman's Creek, and 
1943, 44, divorce is final in 45. Brian O'Hearn is done. He's had enough. Joan, I'd really like that divorce now. Mm-hmm. Where Joan Fontaine is going to get a new boyfriend, like three months later. He's the president of RKO. His name is William Dozier. Hmm. They meet three months later. They're married and they're buying a cozy home in Brentwood, living the quote unquote station wagon and dog's life. They buy a home on Fortis Road in Brentwood, and it's going to be where Joan Fontaine lives for the next 15 years. Even after William Dozier and Joan Fontaine divorced in 1951, during the six years of their marriage, they will form a production company, Rampart Productions. Oh, what is it called? Letter Letter from an Unknown Woman is the film they produce, which is probably Joan Fontaine's next to most stellar performance. Like, it's very good. But their marriage by, like, end of the 50s, falling apart, Joan is going to go on tour in South America, and much like her actress counterparts who like to adopt international babies, Joan is going to take home a young Peruvian girl (laughs) named Martita. This is really, I mean, like, hopefully it went very well for Martita, but it's very weird that No, Joan promised Martita's parents that she'd send Martita back when she was 15, and then she didn't. Oh my god. No, it's bad. There may be like a international adopted children spider web episode in our future. A little bit. Because it's a scandal all Yeah, it really does seem like celebrities even today just sort of go shopping for babies in developing countries, and it's like, it's it's unfortunate. It's, yeah, it doesn't feel right. This home on Fortis Road, they entertain. They have a Japanese chef, lots of fancy dinner parties. At one point, old Joe Kennedy, we got to love an old Joe Kennedy reference, will attend a party. And before dessert is served, he has managed to propose to Joan Fontaine. Very much in the same way that he used his, shall we say, charms with Gloria Swanson. Hey, I'll handle your financial affairs and uh, bed down here whenever I come to California. Joan Fontaine refuses the generous offer. But not one to be deterred. Joni's going to get a new man. Oh, God. She'll get married again to the following year, 1952, to a dude named Collier Young. He's a film producer and a writer. Fine. Great. Here's a spider web, or a few of them. During the time of Joan Fontaine and Collier Young's courtship, Joan Fontaine is working on Ivanhoe, starring with a very young and very lovely Elizabeth Taylor. Just put that in your brain pan. Also, Collier Young has an ex-wife. I mentioned her in the Olivia de Havilland story. Because for some reason, remember when Olivia de Havilland sells all those teddy bears to get the funds to save the church? Yeah, I think. She has all the teddy bears that belong to Ida Lupino, who is an enormous deal in Hollywood. Ida is an actress and a singer, but she is the leading female director and producer in the 1950s, breaking barriers all over in Hollywood. Collier Young is her ex-husband, and Ida is... <laughs> working on a film called The Bigamist, which Collier Young will write, she'll direct, and Joan Fontaine stars in. Awkward turtle, but it's all cool. Is uh, it? <laughs> I mean, it is. They're divorced. 
Joan will star in 1957's Island in the Sun with Harry Belafonte as part of an interracial couple. Like, she's breaking. She's doing some film noir stuff. Like, she's all over the place. She'll take a break in the early 60s. Joan Fontaine and Collier Young will stay married until 1961. So this one lasts for like 10 years. But during the marriage, Joan Fontaine is fooling around plenty, most notably with Prince Ali Khan, the Earl of Warwick. She will date Charles Adams and John Shipwreck Kelly. So lots of fun. In 1961, the divorce happens and Joan's going to move to New York and rent out that home on Fortis Drive in Brentwood, which is destroyed by fire in the infamous fires of Bel Air in the fall of 1961. Super sad. She will console herself by dating Howard Hughes and Adelaide Stevenson, <laughs> who apparently like is Adelaide Stevenson, the most randy fucking man in Hollywood. Cause I have not come across a starlet who has not dated Adelaide Stevenson. Wasn't he a vice president? He ran in like 52. Oh, Dude, there I don't know. He may be his own spider web. Uh, not the point. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, Dude, he's I dated everyone. Thought he was a politician guy. Okay. Who apparently likes Hollywood actresses. I need to research that. Okay. All right. Joan Fontaine is going to take a fourth husband, fourth and final, in 1964. His name is Alfred Wright. He is a writer for Sports Illustrated. He writes about golf. Scintillating. Four marriages. Four uh, divorces. They're out by 1969. So Joan Fontaine, she's going to continue to act on stage and TV and some film. Her last actual role in a feature film was in 1966. Her last performance comes in 1994 in Good King Wenceslas. Sometime in the early 70s, Joan is going to have another lover. He's a doctor. He'll leave her in 1974, and at this time, Olivia de Havilland will come and take care of Joan Fontaine, like, all through this breakup. Hold her hair, give her ice cream. Like, they really do, like, this immense sisterly bonding at this time, which makes the medical diagnosis of mom dying with a terminal disease the next year even more tragic in 1975, because then the really big, big fallout happens between them. Joan Fontaine will write her No Bed of Roses book in 1978, furthering the destruction of that relationship. Again, No Shred of Truth is sure. the code name for that book. Nobody likes Joan's books. Uh, her ex-husband's, the adopted <laughs> sure. kid, Mar Martita, out. Sorry, you um, mean the kidnapping victim, Martita? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you that Joan Fontaine and William Dozier did have one other daughter. That daughter is kind of like, Mom. I'm having some problems with you, too. Olivia's out. Joan will retire in Carmel, California, and spend her last years devoted to animal rights causes. In her life, she does train to be a cordon bleu chef. She'll get her pilot's license. She has 24 film credits, three Oscar nominations, like a legendary life. Joan will pass away at home peacefully in Carmel, California, at the age of 96 in December of 2013, after a long and thoroughly lived life. That is the trashy follow-up of Joan Fontaine, her four divorces. I, don't, I didn't want to neglect her. No, you gotta give the younger sibling her Gotta due. do it. Joni. 
Not a hell of a story, right? <laughs> Joan Fontaine shining a little light on her on that story to wrap that up. Ah, oh, those are the infamous sisters, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. I hope you enjoyed that classy and trashy combo. <laughs> I'll let you decide. Pretty trashy. So trashy. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all are the very best. Until we talk again. Wash those paws. Ah, uh, clean hands. Trashy hearts. Bye. Bye, y'all. Okay, y'all, this is the part that I forgot that now that I'm editing, I'm like, oh, crap, I forgot this. So here's the other Gone with the Wind weird-ass spiderweb. So y'all remember that Olivia de Havilland, after it did not work out with John Houston and her, John Houston marries uh, Evelyn Keyes, who played Sue Ellen in Gone with the Wind. Okay, hold on. Joan Fontaine, when she divorces William Dozier, the president of RKO, he will go on to marry Anne Rutherford, who plays Karine, the younger sister of Scarlett. Scarlett has two sisters, Sue Ellen and Karine. One played by Evelyn Keyes, one played by Anne Rutherford. So both sisters get dumped and their exes, both sisters, Olivia and Joan, will marry each an actress that starred in Gone with the Wind. Evelyn Keyes and Anne Rutherford. That is the weirdest pub trivia question ever. And you're welcome. <laughs> That's all I have to say. I had forgotten to put that in and I knew it was there. And I'm like, what am I forgetting? That is the part I'm forgetting. Y'all are the best. Mwah. Big cheers. That's all I got. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude. Stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Bravo, bros. Good job. Hey, Trash Panda Nation. Let's everyone just take a minute. Give yourselves credit for getting to today. And now we cue Sir Elton John. I'm still standing. Would you like to say that you are standing better than I ever did about your personal finances? Our friends at the Oak Tree Group are ready and willing to help you. The mission of this all-female firm is to guide you through all phases of your financial journey using an intuitive and holistic approach. Best of all, Oak Tree Group is offering our Trashy Divorces listeners a free one-hour consultation with no obligation to talk about your financial concerns. Give the Oak Tree Group a call today at 770-319-1700 
to set up your appointment. Again, that number is 770-319-1700. And you can always visit www.theoaktreegroup.net for more information. There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours, and you can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. And if you're not clicking, that's fine. It is free to change counselors. BetterHelp is available worldwide. They offer specialized expertise that may not be available locally where you live. It's more affordable than traditional counseling. Financial aid is available as well. It has just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor. In fact, there are so many people using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit betterhelp, that's betterhelp.com trashy. Lestesiris trashy Bonaparte's, you say. I don't know why that came out pirate instead of French. It but was Frenchish. <laughs> it's trashy Bonaparte's. Bonaparte de. <laughs> so when we talked last week, we talked about Napoleon's trashy family, Nappy Bones. Oh, Nappy Bones. We have a new name. Nappy Bones. And poor Jojo. His trashy family from the island of Corsica. They roll into Paris like redneck thunder and uh, <laughs> takes over. Tom Arnold should narrate that show. <laughs> redneck thunder. So Bonaparte's invade Paris. So he married Josephine and then for the rest of their marriage, um, his family spent all their time trying to prove to him what an unworthy woman she was and he spent all of his time once he was emperor of France meddling in their marriages and et cetera. So this week, okay, we have they have divorced because poor Jojo, Emperor Nappy Bones yeah. needed an heir, and Josephine was not delivering. Yeah. Although a bunch of Napoleon's girlfriends were. It's funny how it works out mm-hmm. that way. So this week we will talk about Empress Marie Louise of Austria, the second wife. Of Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay. Nappy Bones. Austria. Austria. Marie Louise sounds like she probably knows uh, your very favorite French yes, queen. Yes, Marie Antoinette Jones, Jones who yeah. lost her head in the French Revolution. Oh, also Marie. Austrian. I believe she's the great aunt of Marie Louise. And you can imagine how the family felt. Um, but politics is politics. That's what they say. Here we go. Oh, God. You just had a look. Like, it's it's that trashy? I mean... Okay, go. It kind of goes the way you'd want it to if you're a fan of the Austrian royal family. Or not called wholesome podcast about people doing good things, so... By the time... By the time Napoleon mm-hmm. and Josephine divorced in December 1809, he had already developed a short list of prospective brides-to-be... Remember, she was actually 
interviewing prospective brides oh, at yeah, one point. That's right. Like, mm-hmm. are you good enough? So all of his candidates obviously came from royal houses across Europe that showed evidence of fertility. This was that was like a requirement that was, was on the checklist. Of course, the point Yikes. was that. Um, Although the fact that these people existed at all indicated some amount of fertility in their families. Am I wrong? Prove me wrong. (laughs) Change my mind. At the top, (laughs) ironically, at the top of Napoleon's list was Grand Duchess Anna Pavlovna of Russia, the younger sister of Tsar Alexander I. Oh, well, that would have been a good marriage market hookup. Could have headed off a very disastrous French military campaign years later. Anyway, the Tsar and the Tsar's mother were not all that into Napoleon and just simply did not respond to his letters. Did you see the last season of Redneck Thunder? (laughs) So, yeah, they just like he's sending them letters proposing his very French hand and they're not even bothering to write back cold. Redneck Thunder is the name of a podcast. TM. Changed my mind. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm going to laugh about Redneck Thunder through the entire episode. I swear I'm back. I'm with you right now. Sure. Okay. Princess Maria. Oh, this is such a good story. Princess Maria Augusta of Saxony was another top choice. Oh, God. But at 27, Napoleon thought she might be too old. Yeah, her her childbearing. Yes. Aged eggs. Aged eggs. Oof. <laughs> did you see what I did there? I did. The <laughs> Sorry. I... Y'all, I apologize. I am so silly today because my computer just freed up 700 gig of memory and it's usable again. And I feel like the curse of Macros is lifted. I'm a little exhilarated. I'm sorry. I am with you again. <laughs> I just feel like things are so much better than they were. The curse may be gone. Okay. Trashy bonnet parts. Austria's foreign minister, Clemens von Metternich, suggested the Grand Duchess Marie-Louise, who was born December 12th, 1791, to her father, the Emperor Francis I. Okay. As part of a strategic alliance with France, because France and Austria had been at war for years and years. They had signed a peace treaty. This had cost Austria, like, all of its Adriatic seaports. 20% of its population was now French. <laughs> this had happened in 1809, the same year, Napoleon. And Thank you. That was my question is, Josephine. what year did this happen? Because there was a lot of shady shit going down in that time period. So, yeah, Metternich argued that if if Emperor Frankie could make this union happen, it would create an interval of quiet to allow Austria to regroup a bit rebuild, find its new identity. Build back better. Cut, yes, build uh, back better, sure. cut off from the Adriatic, but who knows. Weirdly, Marie-Louise, who is like 20 at this point, or 18. Young. Her eggs are still ripe. She's ripe eggs. Um, was not <laughs> super enthused about marrying the 40-year-old Ooh. Napoleon. Plus, there was some family history there, as mentioned. So... Anyway, (laughs) these two countries had been at war for all of Marie-Louise's life. She had been raised to hate Napoleon Bonaparte. Right. He was the enemy. 
But she was the eldest of Francis's seven children. She was his favorite. Oh, what happens? Well, she was brought up to understand the obligations that came with being part of the royal family. She was super well-educated. She knew German, French, Italian, Spanish, and Latin, because, you know, gotta chat up in Latin. Anyway, (laughs) she knew arts and music. She was not a great dancer, but good enough. She also you hear about the ripe eggs? Yes, that most importantly. She understood that she would have to marry for political reasons, right? Like she knew she wasn't going to marry for love. And so when dad comes to her with this, she was not thrilled. Again, this is the country that beheaded her great aunt. But, you know, oh, also, right. Napoleon had been responsible for the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805. Yeah. Her father, of course, had been Holy Roman Emperor Francis II, but on the collapse of the empire was demoted to Francis I of Austria. So it, it, her family had been deeply impacted by all of this. Yeah. And Abby Bones hasn't really served them well. No, 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 not the first choice in the husband market. However, Marie Louise is a loyal daughter of Austria and will do what is best for the country. So they had three Wedding ceremonies. This is back in the days of proxy weddings. Oh, Lord. We haven't had a proxy wedding in a while. I just got a little tingle. Proxy it Ooh, up. So March, okay. March 11, 1810, Marie-Louise married by proxy with her uncle, the Archduke Carl. <gasps> okay. I know, right? You couldn't you find, just find some dude. Like, <laughs> hey, Baker, get out from your ovens. Okay. So anyway, uncle by her side standing in for Napoleon. Um, two days later, she leaves Vienna to go to Paris at the French border. She's greeted by her new sister-in-law, Caroline, Queen of Naples. All oh, of, that's nice. All of um, Napoleon's siblings now are installed royals in various places. I mean, pays to have connections. So I think this happened to all incoming French royals from other houses. At the border, there's sort of a ceremony you're expected to relinquish your foreign identity to become French. She removed her clothes. She said goodbye to her court companions. She sent her dog back to Vienna. She bathed, was dressed in French clothing. She would later complain that Queen Caroline spent at least two hours dressing and undressing and styling. And it just... (laughs) It sounds like my sister. (laughs) No, you're not ready yet. Here, let's try this. For her part, Caroline would later write that Marie-Louise was not beautiful, but that she had a good figure, charming blonde hair, a cultivated mind, and a dignified bearing. Others would note that she was also several inches taller than Mm. her new betrothed. Sweet baby. Napoleon was very into this, it turns out, and he was anxiously... Tall lady blonde? Yeah, come on. Got me an Austrian. So he had been acquiring jewelry. Uh, there was like a set of a necklace, earrings, bracelet, and yeah, tiara. Yeah, here comes with Heidi Klum. Three, this is great. 3.3 3 million francs. Oh my God. There was an elaborate wardrobe that he put together for her, including 12 dozen embroidered cambric chemises. That's 144. 12 dozen pairs of stockings, 30, 36 petticoats, 24 bed jackets, and 80 nightcaps, as well as dressing gowns, cashmere shawls, pincushions, 
64 dresses from Leroy and 24 dozen handkerchiefs. Holy so cats. Lady, lady, drop your hanky could be there played you go. at all hours. Wow. <laughs> Always dapper, Napoleon also took the opportunity to update his own wardrobe. Oh, oh, goody. And he quarreled with his tailor when his new okay. shirts arrived with so much embroidery that they were stiff. They were too stiff. Oh, oh poor baby. Mm. Baby bones. So towards the end of March, Napoleon rides out from Paris to meet his new bride. Sure. He threw open the door of his carriage, ignored his sister, Queen Caroline, <laughs> lavished his new bride with attention. So they married in a civil ceremony on April 1st at the Chateau de Saint-Cloud. Saint-Cloud, Minnesota. No. Um, the religious ceremony was held April 2nd at the Louvre. Oh, okay. Napoleon was deeply involved with preparations for both. Sure. He was deeply occupied with inspecting pieces of jewelry. He would hum to himself abstractedly and out of tune. Oh, God. And he was pretty irritable with his advisors who would come to him with, I don't know, questions about political affairs, matters of state, and the military. He had a chapel built inside the Louvre. The theme, as per usual, was gold and more gold. <laughs> 400 guests attended the ceremony, including a bunch of his sisters-in-law, Queen Julie of Spain, oh, okay. brother's wife, Queen Hortense of Holland, brother's wife, Catherine of Westphalia, brother's wife. He wore white and gold embroidered, just a nice costume, with satin cloak covered in golden bees. Uh, oh, golden bees. At the time, it was believed that, be that all bees were male except the queen. Um, so it was a sign of masculinity, in fact. These days it would be a little different. Interesting. Mm. His black velvet cap was surrounded by white feathers and encrusted with diamonds. Marie Louise wore a gown of silver tulle embroidered with pearls. She wore the same velvet mantle that Josephine had worn at Napoleon's coronation. Oh, no. Oh, God, that's got to hurt. Once again, Napoleon's sisters were asked to carry the Empress's train. Princess Pauline complained that the mantle was too heavy. <laughs> Queen Caroline would not even consider it. The Catholic Church itself showed its disapproval when only 14 of France's 27 cardinals showed up. Oh, my God. Pope Pius VII had not granted the annulment of Napoleon and Josephine, so the church still considered the marriage. So technically, this is a bigamist marriage. Holy shit. Didn't matter. Napoleon declared April 2nd a national holiday. <laughs> Everybody drink. Fireworks. <laughs> their wine and meat were distributed across Paris. Oh, la la. Prisoners were released from prison. No, just to go roam the street. <laughs> Come back in the morning. Hopefully to go home to their families. Medallions stamped with the emperor and new empress were deployed. This is amazing. Princess Pauline held a reception with living statues, fairy lights, and a full orchestra. There was an after party hosted by... Oh, God! No! General Henri Clark, it ended in disaster. He had specially constructed a wooden ballroom, which caught on fire. Oh, my God. Napoleon and Marie-Louise, you'll be happy to hear, they escaped without injury, although several people were killed and maimed. This uh, is terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not laughing at that. That's just, whoa. Well, you know. Trashy Bonaparte's is bringing it. Now it's honeymoon time, so off to the Netherlands oh, they go. God, Okay. 
<laughs> what happens now? Okay, so I saw, this is unrelated to this story, but I saw uh, an Instagram post. Um, the current prime minister of the Netherlands, Mark Ruta, is in Greece right now. Sure. For some talks. And the Greek prime minister apparently used Instagram auto-translate. Oh, God. Which described... Oof. Mark Ruta, Prime Minister of the Netherlands, is <laughs> the Prime Minister oh, of the Underworld yeah, in the Instagram so post. Good. Anyway, so off they Prime go. Prime Minister of the Underworld. Off they go to the Underworld. Um, and, you know, they kind of set into a routine when they got back from, I assume, having the time of their lives in Amsterdam. <laughs> Let's hope so. She Let's probably hope they found Barney's. She probably needed a little lightening up. Barney's uptown took care of him. Hundred percent. Marie Louise, it okay. turned out, was quite a good wife. She was a pleasant companion to Napoleon. Generally obedient, but uh, not not all of Napoleon's. <laughs> Generally, well, not all of Napoleon's wishes were granted. For instance, he wanted Josephine to be able to return to court. Uh, Marie Louise. Not so into this. She referred to Josephine as that old lady. He was just like, D- but Jojo, she could just have a room down the hall. Yeah, cool. and she would, um, she would kind of cold shoulder Napoleon when he would go and visit Josephine at Malmaison. Josephine did want to meet Marie Louise, and I mean, I think from her perspective, like I haven't interviewed. I, her. I am out of the picture. You know, oh, really? I, I think. Um, I mean, Napoleon's still going to Malmaison occasionally okay um, but i mean I like just can't quit you but i think their romantic relationship was All concluded right. sure. i could be wrong i mean i don't know napoleon was clearly a dog so i don't know how to quit you jojo anyway napoleon explained to josephine who had expressed an interest in meeting the new wife Quote, she thinks you are very old. If she sees how charming you are, she would ask me to send you away and I would have to do so. <laughs> You're a real smooth talker, man. <laughs> she thinks <laughs> you are like 80, oh, which is God. why you could not have my babies. Don't, you don't need to see. Oh my God, dude, that's a. I showed her a picture of Yoda. <laughs> That is a backhanded compliment if I've ever heard one. So, you know, in general, the new couple gets along well. There are some areas of disagreement. But, you know, Marie-Louise writes to her dad, says that she's fairly happy, and, quote, there is something very forceful and captivating about my husband, which is impossible to resist. Oh, God. Her dad never did come around on the whole Napoleon thing, saying whatever she says, I cannot stomach that creature. (laughs) You'll be surprised to learn that Napoleon's family was not super taken with the new wife either. Oh, my God. With his mother describing Marie-Louise as not one of us. Like, of course not. Not our kind, dear. Corsican idiot. (laughs) Redneck thunder. (laughs) All right. They're never going to be happy with anyone. Well, this is the last one they need to worry about. Oh, God. <laughs> Things go downhill from here. <laughs> Goody. So, yeah. So, like, Napoleon was quite happy with his young new bride, who, again, was very intelligent. Probably more... Well, she sounds like a Debbie Dream Girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's taken her out. Operas, balls, concerts, plays, banquets... He would share, like, 
matters of state, matters of military. He would talk to her and listen to her opinion and did not just disregard her for being a woman. He liked the way that she handled her court and was particularly pleased that she was very good with money, unlike Josephine had been. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. He observed... Close your eyes and think of Austria. Yeah. He observed that Marie-Louise was, quote, fresh as a rose and without any coquetry. She differed in that respect from Josephine, he would say. Okay. I mean, she'd been born royal, right? Like... Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's a rose without a thorn. I'm thinking about Henry VIII and the way he describes Catherine Howard. So I wonder if she has a thorn or does she not have a thorn? I don't know. So problematically, though, because she had been born royal and he was a product of French after this, like, revolutionary Republican period, she was not hip to the idea that public opinion mattered. So she was very aloof and the I French people, yeah. yeah, the French people gradually kind of grew to feel that she was arrogant and cold and distant. Whereas Josephine had very much been a product of French society and was witty and just like hip with the vibe. So sure. it was a problem. So Napoleon kind of kept her out of public view. He didn't want her exposed to criticism of how she was conducting her role as empress. Like, he, anyway. About three months in. Okay. Baby? Baby. Woo! Baby. More wine. Baby. Marie-Louise was pregnant. Okay, great. She was nervous about it. Like, childbirth There's was There's no responsibility super, on her Childbirth anything. was super dangerous yeah, at the time, 100%. of course. Napoleon was really attentive. He would take her out to concerts, plays, keep her distracted with fun stuff so that she wasn't just sitting around worrying. Right. About the pregnancy. nice. She went into labor in March and Napoleon stayed by her side until the like initial flood of pain stopped. And then he, you know, went to get some sleep. Cigars. What else? Yeah. Well, he was awakened in the middle of the night. Um, I'm not sure whether she was actually having any sort of dangerous medical event or was maybe having a panic attack in the middle of a long labor. But in any case, he was awakened and told that she was in danger. So, like, again, laser focused on having an heir, this whole thing, but he insisted that the doctors save the mother above all. <gasps> oh, wow. Nappy yeah. Bones. Uh, good news. Congrats, Nappy Bones. March 20th, 1810, uh, she gives birth to Napoleon. This must be 1811, I think. They married in 1810. Napoleon Francois Charles Joseph Bonaparte. That's a lot of names. Who was immediately named... King of Rome, which is what we're going to call him. That would be easier to write in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, Nappy was suitably shaken by this entire experience. Sure. He did not realize because, again, Josephine had never had a child. He he did not know how much pain and suffering this would inflict. His eyes are opened. On his wife. So Mm. Paris welcomed the King of Rome. They were in the mood to party. There were cannons fired. There was a hot air balloon distributing birth announcements throughout Paris. This is amazing. Barely literate citizenry. The baby would sleep in a silver gilt and mother of pearl cradle. Oh, wow. Aunt Caroline popped up with a miniature coach decorated by the imperial arms. What? That could be drawn by two sheep. (laughs) Slow procession. Napoleon was kind of a cool dad, though. He let the boy play with the figures that he would use on the maps to visualize, right? Like he had 
oh, the kid had that like, would, like it's a real life risk a game. zillion action figures yeah. to play with uh he was often <laughs> seen napoleon was often seen at his desk working with the kid on his lap like it was king of rome had it pretty good um look at all these legos yeah, the general view was that Marie Louise was slightly afraid of interacting with the baby for fear of hurting him. Oh. But um, everyone also agreed that she was a very loving mother. She just. Sure. Sounds like she may just have been. Ha- had some anxiety. Once Nappy Bones had a real and true heir, he was going to refocus on, on France, right? His duty to the future of France was done, so sure. let's get our eyes back on the present. Okay. Unfortunately, okay. a lot had kind of slipped his mind over these last few years of divorcing Josephine and then bride hunt and then married. Uh, whatever. I, Baby. It's a whole new season of Redneck Thunder. You let some things go. So by 1812, Napoleon had been conducting wars now for quite some time, and France was pretty bankrupt. Food prices had doubled. Ordinary French people were pretty tired of seeing their husbands and sons yanked off to go fight in some foreign campaign in Napoleon's army. This had been going on a while. They were starting to be over it. Which makes this the perfect moment for Napoleon to decide that it's time to get some revenge on Tsar Alexander I, who had ignored all his letters and then backed off the idea of a peace treaty. This is the hill you want to die on, dude? This is the hill that half a million Frenchmen will die on. Shit. Under Napoleon's direction. So, woo! Redneck thunder to invade Russia. Season five. Like, get a fucking almanac, dude. All right, so. (laughs) What shall the weather be like? All right. Marie-Louise did not want her husband to leave to go to war that summer. Is it a stupid idea to head into war to Russia in the summertime? We'll just make this real quick, guys. We'll be out by, oh shit. Okay. So yeah, she was continually sending letters, praying for a safe return. Whatever. Can you let me know where you put that insurance policy again, babe? Just want to make sure that I know where that is. 500,000 French troops died due to starvation and exposure. It's horrible. But Napoleon refused to retreat and kept sending, you know, sunny, optimistic letters back to Marie-Louise until on the 13th of January, he returned to Paris, pretending he had not lost. (laughs) Really? Yeah. He started. Really? He returns to Paris. Again, half a million dead bodies. In his wake. And he starts throwing parties. This is the, this is the end of Napoleon. The Napoleon administration. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Parties at Malmaison, at the Tuileries. Done. Political and military leadership are outraged. Yikes. Major, I'm going to screw this name up. Major Raymond de Montesquieu. Montesquieu? Maybe. Okay. Uh, he would call the festivities, quote, an insult to private grief that revealed a cruel insensitivity to the host of victims. Wow. I shall always remember one of those dismal balls at which I felt I was dancing on graves, he would write. That's tough. Yes. Um, Josephine's supporters did Riley note that uh, this being his first military campaign since marrying Marie-Louise, uh, 
Looks like his luck is not. Yeah, Jojo was a lucky charm. So the defeat in Russia undermined him incredibly. So Austria, Marie Louise's home country, Austria joins in an alliance with Russia, Great Britain, and Spain to declare war against France. Caroline, Sister Caroline, Queen of Naples, negotiates with the Allies to try to keep her throne, uh, as does Elisa, who is the Queen of Tuscany. She's, uh, anyway, in in charge of Tuscany. In January 1814, Napoleon leaves his brother Joseph in charge at Paris to head off to fight with his much-depleted French army. Marie-Louise wept. It was... It was that. Anyway, they won a few battles, but obviously you just left too many corpses in Russia. Dude, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So allies march into Paris. Clean up. I-L-U-S-S-R. Yeah. Marie Louise and uh, King of Rome escaped to Vienna. Oh, God. Joseph surrendered the city, the empire, the, the imperial period of Napoleon Bonaparte was done. Napoleon abdicated his throne, tried to get to abdicate it, so like... For his son, but uh, yeah, Tal- no go. Talleyrand, the president of the mm. provisional government, was like, I think, I think the king of Rome is uh, no can go. Yeah, <laughs> king of Rome, not king of Paris. Okay, so Napoleon, in a face-saving move, I guess, was named the sovereign of the island of Elba. Yeah, and uh, dispatched there with a small court. Marie Louise promised to join him there. But her father was like, no, you are bringing my grandson to Vienna now. Season six of Redneck Thunder, Exile. Exile in Elba. (laughs) Survivor edition. (sighs) So Francis I of Austria was... Deeply unsettled by his, oh, yeah, you think? his daughter's yeah. new way of thinking and Ooh, French customs uh-oh. and true devotion to Napoleon She's Bonaparte, Paris. his sworn enemy. Oh, God. Her attendants tried to convince her not to go to Elba to be with her husband, reminding her that he had married her as a political matter, that, that you did this not marry not for love. love. Yeah. They told her about all of his lovers who were attempting to join him there. Oh, God. Like, look, he is not faithful to you. But You're she, in danger. She continued to write Napoleon letters. Oh, in July 1814, she requested to take the waters at a resort community from which she would then go on to Elba. And her father relented and let it happen. But he did appoint a trusted guard to accompany Marie-Louise, his daughter. Okay. General Albert von Niepberg, nope, General Albert von Niepberg would join Marie Louise to go to the resort and then on to Alba. <laughs> We're going to stop at a resort. I'm getting a lot of uh, Charles Brandon, uh, Mary Tudor vibes here. Francis had instructed, I'm going to just go with Albert because that last name is tough to say. Oh, God. I mean, he was like a dashing soldier guy who sure. lost an eye to a bayonet. So, like, he, he was a one-eyed guy. One-eyed Al. But quite charismatic, I uh-huh. gather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Francis... And they were good. They're at a resort. Francis told oh, one-eyed shit. Al to um, prevent his daughter from joining Napoleon, quote, by any means whatsoever. Oh, I got an idea, Al says. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was a charmer, and he quickly earned the former empress's trust. Cat Mal can make you smile. He would join her on walks. Oh, God. He played the piano while she wrote letters to Napoleon. Oh, yeah. They talked history and music in a way that she never could have with Napoleon. Oh, oh, oh. What Af- happened? After her, after her stay at the, at the baths, she and One-Eyed Owl took Vacation, a detour. all I ever wanted. Through Switzerland. <laughs> taking the majesty of the Alps. Oh, God. Eat some cheese. Sure. They became lovers. Oh, uh, yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> Marie Louise never made it to Elba. <laughs> Is she on a mountainside with sheep and cap now? Almost. By the time they got back to Vienna, oh my god, she said she would never set foot in France again. That horrible country for anything in the world. She's been reindoctrinated. Yes. Um, <laughs> She, she never saw Napoleon again. Oh, my. In June 1815, she was named Duchess of Parma, Piacenza, and Guastalla. Oh, I don't know. In 1816, she moved to Italy with One-Eyed Al, who was named her chief advisor and prime minister. Perfect. Parfait. <laughs> uh, the King of Rome was uh, renamed the Duke of Reichstadt. He remained in Vienna as part of the Austrian court. Okay. Parma was really rural, so it's just like the hills are alive kind of crap. She's just spinning in her dress, and it's all good. She makes a series of infrastructure improvements. She, like, Of course she does. Updates the legal code. <laughs> she had big gardens. She entertained regularly, and annually she would go and visit her father and son in Vienna. Dude, I was queen of fucking France. This is Parma. This is like... Fine. She I and, got this. She and One-Eyed Al had three kids. Oh, my God. Uh, in May 1821, when Napoleon had died, she and One-Eyed Al married. So there was no divorce between Napoleon Mm-mm. and Marie-Louise. Huh. Mm-mm. She just lived in sin with Captain Al for seven oh, yeah. years. Oh, That's yeah. fantastic. Churning out the pups. Oh, my God. Trashy Bonaparte's is really... Yeah. Nailing it this November. Yeah. So they married in 1821. He lived to 1829 and she continued to enjoy her quiet country life. I think she lived into the 1840s. That's amazing. She had done her duty to Austria. Sure. Her marriage to the emperor of France became a distant memory. The Bonaparte dynasty, meanwhile, was really in trouble. Napoleon had stepped down from his throne. His son was being raised as an Austrian his sisters had betrayed him. His brother Joseph had retreated to the United States oh, to live shit. a more anonymous life. No. Napoleon had made other investments in his legacy, however, and his interference in his siblings' marriages would eventually pay off for him. The Bonaparte's trashy dynasty would, in fact, continue. Is that what's dun, coming? Dun, 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 dun. Next week on Redneck Thunder. Oh my God, Redneck Thunder is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Kim S. again gets the credit. Yeah, Kim S. This Uh, This is amazing. Très bon. Stories. Woo. Has a redneck thunder. Redneck thunder. I can't wait for next Wednesday. (laughs) I am so sorry that I was so silly. I normally keep it together a little bit more than that. No, it's... It it it's been stressful with it's, your. It's been a few days of. Do I have the curse of Mackers or not? Anytime, and 
Yeah, we could, like, we picked up the backup drive for 60 bucks or whatever versus having to spend, you know, $1,200 or something on a new machine and upgraded memory and all the other stuff that we would need. So, no, good, good, good. Please forgive me for being a little sillier Mm -hmm. than I normally was. That was an amazing story, Kim S. Wowza. Stacy, hell of a delivery. Thanks. I can't wait for next week. Bona. Portray. Redneck Thunder. The continuation. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but that's how it feels. No, there are rednecks everywhere, babe. That is entirely true. All right. All right, friends. Hey, thank you for tuning in. That's Trashy Bonaparte's for the week. Big love to you. Go have an amazing week. I just burped. Until we... Talk again whenever that might be this week. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Keep your redneck thundering. Redneck thunder. (laughs) Oh my god, I can't even believe we haven't had a cat interruption. Oh wow, yeah. I do feel like the world is turning in our favor. Y'all, we love you, we adore you. Go have an amazing week. Big love. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all